All right, so if you have your Bibles, we are in Genesis chapter... Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're going to be in verses uh, 8. I changed it up. Where are we going to? I think we're going to 8 to, to, to 19. Uh, so Genesis chapter 3, very front of the Bible, starting in verse 8. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for the hope that we find in the scriptures. Father, as we continue our, our journey uh, through Genesis chapter 3, this, this chapter really is so significant in uh, giving insight to the world that we live in today, um, that, that the fall of humanity is a real event and that there are real consequences and that we, we live in this, this reality of the, the depravity of man, that there, there is evil in this world, there is things that bring discouragement and darkness and death has entered the human race through all of creation because of the fall. And so we are confronted with the implications of the fall of man on a daily basis. And it's it can be discouraging and, and hopeless as we look around this world and Father, as we enter this Christmas season where our, our culture celebrates the, the birth of Christ, we pray, Father, that you would help us to, to truly deep within our hearts and souls uh, understand why it is that we are so joyful that in the midst of the darkness, light came down and, and that Jesus lived this perfect life that he ultimately would make a sacrifice for us and restore this, this brokenness. And so we celebrate his coming. We long for his, his return. Uh, Father, we pray that in the midst of our, our suffering and, and sadness, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, help us as we navigate this story to see uh, what happened and even embedded in, in this, the fall of the story, we see the very first uh, messianic, prophecy that Jesus would come. And so we thank you that in the midst of consequence, your mercy and grace abounds. And so we thank you, God, uh, for being so good to us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And Father, we do thank you again for the story. We thank you that it's been preserved for us, that you have passed it down from generation to generation to us so that our understanding of the world around us would make sense, that we would see your hand just through human history, and that we would 
see uh, your redemptive story uh, through the pages of the scripture, that we would see uh, your plan of redemption in our own lives. And we are just so grateful, Lord, for all of this. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we begin with this, this, this first part, uh, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And so this is kind of like a beautiful picture. Like it, it, uh, The picture seems to indicate that before the fall, before their hiding, uh, life for them in the garden was, was just they're, they're enjoying life. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, we, we saw that they were naked without shame. It was just that, that that's just how they lived. The climate was perfect. Everything was, was good. Seems like in the late afternoon, God would show up and just start walking, and they would come out, and they would just fellowship with God, and, and it's beautiful. I mean, it really is just this, this wonderful scene. It's, it's, it's so beautiful that we, like, we're so far from here that we can't even begin to comprehend this sort of fellowship, this sort of this, this sweetness, because our whole world, our whole existence is so tainted by sin and the effects of sin. And so now in this story, they've eaten the forbidden fruit, whatever it, whatever it was, we don't know. They ate of it. Something changed last week within them. Their DNA shifted. Their understanding shifted. They immediately uh, try to clothe themselves with some, some leaves. They hear God, and they're like, oh, great, and they go to hide. Um, this makes total sense for me. My nickname in the SEAL teams was Gunner the Runner, or at least in my platoons. Uh, first platoon in particular just stuck with me because when I heard the guys coming, I split because I didn't like getting hazed. And so then I, they always found me though. So it was like, a, it was, but well, same thing in this story. Um, but I, I gathered the nickname Gunner the Runner. Like I heard trouble, I ran. I did something wrong, I ran. I didn't want to like just let's hide. And so they, they split. They're like, we're going we're gonna to hide. We're going to get out of this situation. God's not going to find us. And it really, just, this whole story just like begs the question, the obvious question, can you really hide from God? No. Like Psalm 139.7, the, the psalmist writes, like, where can I go from your presence? If I went up to the, the, the stars, you'd find me. If I went to the very bottom of the ocean, you'd find me. There's nowhere that I can go from you. And that's a really a beautiful truth that God is with us. He's always present. There's nowhere that we can go or to be taken from uh, his, his presence. And this should bring like wonderful comfort and peace to our heart and souls that whatever trial or tribulation you're going through, that God is there in your midst. And when we sin, when we fall short of the glory of God, when we make mistakes to know that God is there, like we can turn to him, and he offers restoration. We come to verse 9, and it's this funny scene. We see that then, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? When I read this, it reminds me of this game that we play in our house, and if you've had little kids, I'm sure that you've played it, but inevitably, like right now, the youngest in my family is little Titus, and Titus will hop up on my back, and he'll be like choking me, and I'll be walking through the house like, hey, mom, have you seen Titus? I can't see him. You know, and there's all the laughter on the back. You guys play this game or is it just me? Like you guys are all, 
Like, it's hilarious when you play this game. It's like the kid's choking you out. You can, like, I don't see him. And Hannah's like, I don't see him either. All the other kids are, like, giggling, giggling, like, because Titus is obviously on my back giving me this bear hug, and he's making all kind of noise. But we're like, I don't see him. And so it's kind of like God knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. And he's walking through, hey, Adam, where are you, buddy? And it's like he's like hiding in the bushes. I look it in the bushes. I don't see anything. And, and it's really this beautiful picture of, of God's nature with us. Romans 2.4 tells us, like, not to forget the kindness of God, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that in our sinfulness, in our running from God and going against him for some of us for a large part of our lives, that God doesn't, like, come chasing after us, like, wanting to beat us over the head. God pursues us with, like, I love you. Like, I want good for you. I want to help you. I've provided this way for you. Will you turn your ear to me? And through this whole inner, like this interchange between God and Adam, it's like God is, is allowing Adam to first come to God and to say, hey, God, I did something wrong. He's giving Adam this, this opportunity to take responsibility. And it's beautiful that God, like God knows everything. He say, hey, what do you guys do? Like I knew what you guys did. I think it's a beautiful example, like as a parent, of how to parent. It's a beautiful example of how we need to, um, to interact with one another. Like, it's so easy to start just going, why did you do this? What did you do? And if you just sat back, like, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten in trouble by making the assumption that the person did something. One of my more funny parenting stories, I missed the opportunity. Anna's very good at this. I'm terrible at this. The boys are out playing hockey on the concrete slab on our patio. I'm, like, inside of the office, which is our garage. And I hear laughter. Then the laughter turns into this, like, ooh, something bad is happening out there. Like, these boys are, like, fisticuffs fighting. And I hear it, and I immediately get furious. And I'm like, I'm going to go just to deal with these boys in my flesh. I'm like, and I can't even deal with them right now. Like, you got to go out there. If I go out there, I'm going to make a mistake. Two minutes later, Anna comes out like super laughing. And she's like, you just missed one of the most epic parenting moments of our existence. Like, and I'm like, no, no, what happened? Because if I went there, I went to figure out what happened. Anna goes out there, okay, boys, what's going on here? And Titus is like, Titus is legitimately mad. He's like, Gideon wanted me to be the goalie, and I didn't want to be the goalie. I wanted to score points, but Gideon told me that if I was the goalie, every time he scored a shot, I could hit him with the stick as hard as I could, (laughs) and so it seemed like fun, and so on the 10th goal, when I hit him for the 10th time, Gideon just loses it and like goes after the brother, and he's like, I'm just playing by the rules. So I knew that because I didn't have the aptitude to go out there and say, okay, boys, let's sit down. What's going on here? Within 30 seconds, Anna's like laughing. She's like, you guys, like, why don't you guys go play soccer now? Like, hockey's over. (laughs) Go play a different game. And I think so often we, like, we assume somebody did something, and we just kind of go after them with the, that they're not innocent, or we don't even seek to, like, see the bigger story of what's going on. 
And so, like, just seeing God, like, in this whole interaction with God and Adam, he first calls out to Adam, gives Adam a, an opportunity to, like, say, hey, uh, we, need, we need to talk. Then in the, as God knows what's going on, as he's sort of confronting Adam, he doesn't confront, he, he confronts him with questions, like, hey, what, like, what happened here? And I think that looking at God's interaction with Adam, there's so much that we can learn in how we interact with one another. And so in verse 10, he, Adam, he, that's Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was a naked. I, was, I, keep, I keep hearing southern. I'm not even from the south, but I keep hearing reading naked. And I don't know why that is. So I'm trying to, like, say proper. Uh, was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And so Adam says, yeah, you're looking for me. The reason you didn't find me is because I was afraid of you. And I can just see God going, why are you afraid of me? Like, what, like, w- w- what have I done to make you afraid of me? And he says, well, I was naked. That's another one. Like, what, naked? Like, this is a new concept. Like, how did this, like, how did this, like, come into play? And so that we're told that he, that he hid. Now, in Adam's response, there's no confession. There's not a, I violated your word and your instruction, and we ate of the fruit, and we made a huge disaster of this. He just acknowledged, like, what, what he was feeling. Like, there's no even that he was wrong. He just said, hey, I was afraid of you, and I was naked, and so I hid. And so then God said, who told you that you were naked? Question number one, who told you that you were naked? And then question number two is, have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And I love, again, that God is asking him these probing questions. He's not condemning Adam. He's not, like, jumping to this conclusion. And, and if anybody could jump to a conclusion, it's God because he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He, he created everything. He knows everything. Like, he could jump to the conclusion. But even in his, like his, his knowledge, all-knowingness, he asks some questions. First, did, did this knowledge come from external sources? Like, were you in the garden and the serpent come to you and say, hey, you know what? You're naked. He looks down, like, oh, how'd that happen? Or is this something that internally changed within you? Did something change within you because you ate from the fruit that I gave you? And again, God, God knows all of this. This whole story is like, you know, I have a question here, but there's really no point of it. But it's like, I don't know, maybe there's some, like, have you ever wondered, like, why do we wear clothes? I, I mean, do I am not aware of any other creature that wears clothes. It's kind of, I don't, I don't want to say it's kind of weird because I'm not trying to make a case to, like, go away from that. <laughs> but it's like when I read this story, suddenly, like, clothing, like, appeared. Like, and of all God's creation, like, we're the one creature, like, that decides, like, we need to put some clothing on. It's just odd to me. And so he asks these questions. So how would Adam reply? And Adam doesn't take responsibility. He, he plays the, the blame game. Um, he, he ultimately, if you read through his reasoning, he ultimately blames God for, for creating the situation that allowed this to happen. The old rule book of deny everything, make counter accusations. It's like, he's like, ah, you, you did this. And this moment is so, like, critical. Like, I, from one commentator uh, 
Corson, who's a pastor up in Oregon, he wrote, um, this opportunity that, Adam is, that God is giving Adam is so significant, and God does this to us all the time. Because God knew how precisely what Adam had done, he's not after information from Adam, but confession from him. So too, God wants to get me to a place where I confess to him, not because he wants to embarrass me or needs information about my sin, but because when I confess sin, it loses its grip on me. That's why confession is so important. Confession doesn't bring forgiveness because, it for, because forgiveness was already granted at the cross. Confession doesn't forgive us. It simply frees us from the grip of sin in our lives. And I thought that was super good. Like, here God is, like, like prompting, pushing, asking these probing questions, allowing Adam to then, like, to respond in acknowledgement of, like, God, I messed up. Like, God knows our mess, like, how we mess up. Like, God knows our messings ups. I don't, uh, like, when we mess up, God knows. And there's no point in trying to hide it. Like, so often we sin and we try to, like, hide it. And, and ultimately, it seems like it, it spreads. Instead of just owning, like, I sinned, I did this wrong. In our marriages, when we sin and we mess up, it's such a, like, powerful thing when you say, you know what, I sinned against you. I'm really sorry. I like, will you forgive me? Like, I am sorry with God when we sin against God, which really all of our sin is against God. Like, Lord, I really messed up and I keep doing this. Will you help me to to not sin like this? I want to honor you with my life and my flesh is just so strong. I think I went too far here. No, I just jumped way ahead. Did I not read verse 12? No? Well, I caught it. We all know it. So, so the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So instead of like confessing, he just simply says, hey, God, you know, everything was good when I was alone. When I was single and I had all the animals and all of everything, it was good. You decided it wasn't good for me to be alone, so you pulled out one of my ribs, you made this creature, you put her here, and this woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit, I ate of it. This is like, dude, just, hey, I messed up. But instead of confessing, he like totally puts it on God and then the girl and and here we are. So God doesn't like, he's just like, he moves to Eve. Okay. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And a little rinse and repeat. Same, same question. What, what happened, Eve? Like, why are you guys hiding? What, like, what's going on? And Eve basically says in simple terms what happened. No ownership, just the serpent deceived me and I ate. Sing was more crafty than me. I went along with what it said, and I ate. So as we recap this whole thing, God's just out for his afternoon walk. He wants to go be with his creation and fellowship and just the utopia that he had created. He can't find Adam and Eve. He knows that they're hiding. 
And so he calls out, hey, Adam, where are you at? Hey, I'm hiding because I'm afraid of you and I'm naked. What, who told you this? Or did you eat from the fruit? Well, that woman that you gave me, she did this. I, so he goes to the woman, what happened? Well, that serpent that's here, he's more crafty than me, and I was deceived, and so I, so I ate. God doesn't go to the, the serpent. He, he deals with Adam first, for he bears responsibility for his family. He was the one ultimately who received the firsthand instructions for what they were to do and not do within the garden. The serpent goes to Eve, so God addresses Adam. He addresses Eve. He gets to the, the end of the name game. Uh, and then he just addresses the serpent. There's no questions to the serpent. In verses 14 through 15, next week we're going to really kind of hone in on verse uh, 15 this, uh, or, or 16, this, this, this promise, of, excuse me, verse 15, this, this promise that God makes. It's the first glimpse of the gospel that we see in the Bible. And so we see the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so as he reached the end of, end of this, this conversation, he doesn't have any conversation with the serpent. He just says, Here's the curse. Here's the consequence. You're going to the ground. We don't have video, but it seems to indicate that there was like a, maybe there were legs or there was a more of a vertical situation. He, he goes to the ground. Um, amongst all of the animals, he's like now on the bottom tier of it. I'm not going to make a big case on this is why we hate snakes in Valley Center, but because inevitably some people say, oh, I love snakes, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, but, but there's something about this creature that, that he gets cursed, and he goes to the very bottom of, of all of the animals, of all the creation. We're told that he goes to the belly, so I don't know if he had appendages, and they suddenly vanished. We, we just don't know, and then there's this the very first glimpse of the gospel, like in the midst of, of God dishing out consequences, there's his hope, we see his mercy, and we see his grace. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so all scholars, most people, when they read this, as you look at the whole of the scripture, this is a prophecy concerning Jesus. And as we take it to the cross, what's believed to be understood is that when Jesus is nailed to the cross and crucified, that his heel is bruised, that, that Jesus, there's, there's, an, there's a wound that's inflicted on him, but it's not fatal because he overcame death. But in that action of Jesus dying on the cross, ultimately the victory was attained and Satan's whole plan, his whole plan to, to thwart what God is doing is crushed. And as we unfold scripture, we look to Jesus' second return. As we go into Revelation, we see that, that Satan will be uh, brought up again and cast in, into to the lake of fire indefinitely, that it's game over for him. And so it's, 
beautiful. And so often God like works like this, that in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the consequences that we're, we're suffering because of the stupidity that we inflict on ourselves, the sinful nature that we have, the things that we do and fall short, that God in his grace and his mercy, as we inflict, like are inflicted with the consequences and suffering, that in the midst of this, there's lightness. And there's God blessing us and God giving us hope, God demonstrating his mercy to us, which means that he's withholding wrath that is due us and that he pours his grace over us. Like this ultimately is why Christmas is so important and so meaningful because we recognize the darkness and the hopelessness of the situation that we find ourselves and we reflect back to the beauty and that God fulfilled his promise and delivering Jesus during his first advent. As we reflect that Jesus was faithful in coming that first time, he's also made promises that are yet to be fulfilled in his return. And so we have hope knowing that what we see around us, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, the agony, this stuff is temporal. And God has something that's so much better for us than what we see in this present life. For in this present life, there is suffering. And if you look for like, your hope and your security to be found here, like through a political leader, you're just going to be disappointed. If you think that a state government is going to bring you joy and peace and happiness, you're just going to be disappointed. Like ultimately, our hope and our security is found through Christ, that he is in control. And so to the woman, fortunately, we're out of like, we're running out of time. I'm not going to be able to unpack this all the way. We're just going to fly over this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we see that there's consequences. We, we see uh, that there's, there's pain in birth. Um, we see there's also sort of a promise that you will be able to bring forth children and that you'll survive the pain. And then there's, there's this, this origination of relational tensions. Like, much ink has been spilled over what does this mean. Um, it seemed like prior to the fall, there was like this, this unity bet- between... Adam and Eve, like there, there wasn't sin and, and they're able to, to work together in harmony and something, something shifts here. And there's something seems to be with like her desire, like to enter into competition, like with her husband and that like this pushback. And it's like, there's, there's tension here. And if you're married or you've been married, like it doesn't take a, like marriage can be difficult. Um, like, even for those that are happily married, like, I'm super happily married. I super love my wife. Like, but, she, I mean, she would acknowledge being married to me has been difficult over the years. It's getting much easier. You know, we have some more experience, and we're getting better at it. Like, but, but there's tension, and it seems to be that somehow in their relationship, part of the consequence of the fall is, is that there's going to be a, a, a strain there. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree from which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. So you can blame Adam for those of you that have to do all the weed whacking in the spring. I, 
I frustrated with him every year. Um, in toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so I want to point out, first off, that, that, that work isn't the consequence. Like, like that Adam has to work isn't the consequence because we see even in the pre-fall garden that they were to cultivate and they were to, t- to care and to mend for. Like work is a blessing. Like God has created us to be like him, to be creating beings and to be work. Like, so don't read in that the, the work is the consequence. The work getting harder is a consequence. <laughs> One commentator said they sinned by eating, so now they're going to suffer in order to eat. Like their sin was that they ate. And then they ate of this fruit that they weren't supposed to eat from. So now in order to eat, it's going to just take a lot of work. And if you talk to a farmer, like, it's a real science. Like, it's crazy. Like, like it's not, like, just as a matter. Like, I try to just, you know, I throw some seeds out on the dirt, on the clay, and it's like I water, and it's like, why is nothing coming? Well, it's not that simple, Gunnar. <laughs> like, it's not, like, it, it's work. It's a science. And it's like the chemicals in the ground and figure it, not the chemicals, the nutrients. They're the same thing in my mind. Um, but it's like all of the stuff and the pH and how, like when you talk to a farmer about what it takes to get an avocado, it's a lot of work. That's why they're so expensive, you know, like because it's, it's, it's hard. And then we see that death enters the story. It's always the worst when it happens. It happens, it happens all the time. It's happened to me. It's like no problem. Everybody okay? <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. It's all because of the fall. Like we recognize like it's just like... <laughs> no, 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 he's in trouble now. Where, where do you want to go to lunch today, Sharon? Like anywhere you want to go to lunch, he's like, now we can laugh. So it's hard work. Like work happens, but then in this story, the one that we suffer with the most is death now enters the scene. You came from dust, you're going to return to dust. It's like, what do we do with this story? Like, this, this story is, is sobering. Like, if we look at what Christianity says about our earth, and you look around in our world, to me, it aligns. Like, sin is real. And sin has real consequences. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the structure of our DNA changed. Now, I haven't, like, I don't think a scientist is going to be able to find the actual, oh, there's the sin strain in the DNA. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But within us, like, we're sinners. And we sin because we're born sinners. Um, we see it all around us. We see it in society. We see it how people, like, humanity isn't basically good. Like, when you look at human history, there's a whole lot of really just ugliness. Now, the nature of God is in, in, imprinted on us, even as fallen creatures, and I think that there's God's goodness that we see within humanity. But we see that sin entered humanity in chapter 3, and then from sin, death enters the scene. It's what we're told. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, we're told that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and I think this explains that, like, when we see death or we're confronted with death, there's something within us that, that, that 
that just doesn't sit right. And, and so, like, in my family this week, like, my mother-in-law loves the Lord. She's been saying, like, I'm just ready to go. Like, we're not, like, in this week, but just, like, she's like, hey, guys, when I die, like, have a party, like, celebrate. I'm with the Lord. Like, I, like, I'm good. But in that moment of breaking the news, we're all crying. Like, here we are. We're believers. We, we take this stuff, like, really seriously. Like, we really, truly believe that, like, Jesus truly existed, truly went to the cross, truly overcame death, that am I believing in him that I have new life in him, right? Amen. All of us, now we're faced with death. There's something within us that the tears start flowing and the sadness. And the reason is because God's placed eternity in our heart and we weren't created to experience death yet when we're fa- so when we're faced with it, we know intrinsically it doesn't feel right. Even though that we have all these promises, we have the hope, we, we cry and we're sad because this isn't what God intended. When we see our loved one decay, when I like go meet with my dad and he's saying, I'm dying slowly, like I'm like dying a piece at a time. Like it's sad to us. And we go, this isn't what, no, this isn't what God created. Like this isn't what God intended. God intended for us to live in that, the first two chapters of Genesis, but everything changed. And in that change, God's creation was, was stained with sin. But even in that moment, he gives us his hope. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 through 57, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we experience death. It hurts. It's painful. Like the Bible says that, that we who are believers we're not to mourn as those without hope, but we still mourn. And in the midst of this, we have that but God. But God gave this promise in the midst of the fall that through the seed of the woman, this Messiah would come. And through this Messiah, this whole consequence of sin, that things would be restored. And we see God's grace and mercy as he gently leads them and he gently leads us to hope. And I love that the gospel story is right here in the very beginning. Jesus was at work then and he's at work now. Like in the midst of our sorrow and the thing, like all you got to do is like, I mean, I don't recommend it. Like you're probably better off just not looking at the news anymore. Like not like there's a, like it's like a very little value. And if we keep our eyes on Christ, like we can experience like true peace and true joy, knowing that He's in control, and that is what Christmas is all about, and what we can focus on over the next few weeks. With that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you. For your word, we thank you, God, for how you are moving in our midst. Father, we thank you that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the sorrow and the pain of, of, of really death, um, the wounds of, of sinful humanity just kind of making a mess of this world, we thank you that in the midst of this, we know that you are in control and that we can find our peace and strength through you. 
We thank you that Jesus came and that he died, that he rose from the dead, and that we're told that if we believe in him, that there's an exchange that happens, that we move from Adam to Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we go through this joyous season of Christmas, we pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes on the risen Christ, to know that he paid it all for us so that we might have life and joy and hope in him. We are so grateful, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.